Hello and welcome to Postgres FM. I'm Michael from PG Mustard. I'm back after a couple of weeks off. Thank you so much for holding the fort, Nikolai. This is Nikolai from Postgres AI. How are you doing? Much better than the last two weeks. Thank you for returning. I, I was thinking maybe you, that's it. You decided to stop this after one year of doing it. Yeah, unlike Americans, us Europeans do take holidays and two weeks off must be almost all of your annual leave, I guess, over there. But yeah, we like our summer holidays here. I don't know what you're talking about. I, I have <laughs> free spots in my calendar today. I, I've noticed so people still can schedule talks, even even if it's holiday. Today is July 4th, but uh, I still have some work to do probably. So this is episode number 53. Today is July 4th, and uh, our first episode was published last year, July 5th. Well, yeah, so this is our one-year anniversary, and we decided we're going to do a a mailbag episode. We've got a lot of requests and suggestions and things from people over the over the year, probably more than either of us were expecting, so thank you, everybody. But it does mean we have struggled to keep up with the suggestions. And we've got a few that probably aren't full episodes or that we can give a little kind of quick couple of opinions or maybe even it's just a quick answer to. So I think the idea was for us to go through some of those this week. So it's going to be a bit of a mixed bag Hopefully, a few of you that have asked those questions will get something out of it, and we can probably follow up with a few of them in more detail at some point. Right. It's like a photo dump in Instagram. By the way, the reader side, the software we are using just told me that subscription has expired, meaning that exactly one year ago you subscribed, right? Congratulations. Wow. <laughs> you need to pay again. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. Okay, let's start. Wonderful. So... The first question I had in the list was, what is the effect of wow log hints equals on after bulk deletes? Why does the next select one slow and generate tons of wall? So this one came in via Twitter. Yeah, that's strange. I, I, I saw this question and it's, it's strange that wow log hints leads. To, I don't think there's connection here. Maybe I'm wrong, but uh, wall hints are needed to propagate uh, hint bits to to yeah. wall and to to replicas. So uh, one of like the key purposes of it is if we if uh, failovers, for example, Patroni supports it. If failover happens and uh, there is some deviation, old primary can be slightly in future compared to new primary. And uh, in this case, uh, regular approach we need to rebuild it. But if hint bits are wall logged. Patroni can uh, apply PG rewind or we can re apply PG rewind and uh, make standby out of former primary much faster. But uh, speaking of bulk deletes, I think the problem is not in wall log hints. Uh, maybe I'm wrong again. But uh, I think the problem itself is in bulk deletes themselves. Like if you, if you delete a lot, a lot of tuples and then read from the same pages some live tuples or revisit, like if indexes don't have version information. So index scan checking uh, heap records, records in heap and table, might find that these records already dead, just deleted recently. And there is also a mechanism like in place uh, vacuum. When you select something, Postgres might decide to vacuum right now a little bit in this page. And when vacuum, hap vacuum happens, uh, it leads to the additional wall writes, of course. So I think the problem is, uh, maybe again, maybe I'm wrong. 
While log hint, if it's off, then on replicas we might see selects leading to writes because we don't have hint bits. There is an article, uh, old article in uh, Okimeter blog, we can attach it. Uh, if you don't have wall log hints, then on replicas you just select something and Postgres decides to update hint bits and this causes some writes on, on replicas. But this is different. So I think the author of this question deals with bulk deletes. And the problem is bulk deletes and lack of control of auto-vacuum behavior. So what we need, we need like to split deletes in batches. We need to control it. We need to make sure that dead tuples are cleaned up more aggressively, more actively by auto-vacuum workers. Or manually we can vacuum ourselves, right? So this is what I think in this case. But I, maybe I'm wrong, yeah. Yeah, well, I'll okay. respond, I'll respond to the person on Twitter. So hopefully they can let us know more detail if they're if they've got it. For anybody else wondering, this is off by default, so not something you need to worry about unless unless you've turned it on. Yeah, if I'm wrong, it would be great to to have some reproduction and explore it. Uh, yeah, and it would be interesting to explore uh, like with additional tooling. Could it be that the select is setting hint bits and therefore causing a load of full page writes, whereas they, it wouldn't have done? If you're just doing a select afterwards, you wouldn't have caused any wow, like wow, without this setting on. So it's, you're causing a bunch of full page writes that you wouldn't have done in the in the previous uh, setup. Maybe actually, yeah, interesting. Well, yeah, it's interesting. We can explore this with page inspect, for example, right? We can delete, mm. inspect the pages before our select and after our select, and hint bits will be visible there. So page inspect could help to understand the yeah, behavior cool. and, and yeah great suggestion should we move on yeah let's do it right so how to get started reading postgres source code maybe postgresql style c reference guide to consult with for non-c programmers so yeah any advice for people first getting started or I've, I've got i saw on the wiki on the postgres wiki that there's a really good slightly oddly titled page called so you want to be a developer which I, I actually thought was really good advice in general from everything I've seen. So I'll link that up in the show notes. But how about from your perspective? Well, I think reading source code is not a major issue, a ma major challenge uh, if you want to be a developer. The major challenge is different. It's like dealing with discussions and with other people and convince them that you your vision is better. Yeah. So defending your your thoughts opinions but reading source code is, requires no uh, like in the beginning it doesn't require c coding experience it requires just understanding english because yeah. there are good comments and there are good readme files it's enough to understand what's happening like code is covered with good comments definitely and i think uh, this is the main thing like i, I usually just read it and maybe some challenges to find how to find proper places in source code because it's huge you need to find proper places and uh, i usually use just git git grab sometimes i use gitlab or github search but uh, it's not super convenient also there is source graph or something which helps you to navigate uh, you have a function you can quickly s see it's uh, i have a browser extension for that you, I, I can quickly jump to definition of functions to see all calls so it's basic uh, tooling for navigation in code regardless of language 
it helps as well to navigate a little bit. But I also think there is opportunity here and actually some small secret to be revealed. There is opportunity to have a good tool to talk to to source code, right? To like explain me, I mean, ChatGPT, right? Or something, some LLM or something. Just explain me how this is working and based on comments and not only comments on code itself, this tool can explain you, show you, uh, mention particular files and even line numbers, depending on version, of course. Oh, also very good thing is to read two books, uh, internals books, one from, from Suzuki, one from Rogov, Igor Rogov, and particularly Igor Rogov's book about Postgres internals. It has links to source code, like check this file. We describe something here in terms of how Postgres works, and you can find it in this file. It has on side these links. It's very convenient. This is my like overview of the problem. Nice. I agree with you, by the way, and I've found GitHub search to be surprisingly good for just for reading the comp, like for getting to places where the comments are good. They improved recently, a year or two ago. Nice. Next one. So this is quite a long one, but it's basically about isolation levels. Their uses in different scenarios, battle tested strategies and insights, performance trade-offs, edge cases to consider at scale with replication, sharding, etc. There was some interesting Jepson analysis that they've linked to and has this type of behavior or another one similar to this affected you or your clients in any significant way? Well, I'm very uh, old TP guy with very like focus on uh, mobile and web apps. And we usually used to, to work at mm-hmm. default level read committed in which you, you might see inconsistency, for example, in single transaction. Oh, by the way, we also usually tend to have uh, small yeah. transactions, sometimes single statement transactions, right? And uh, actually uh, being like DBA, I hate when people use explicit begin commit block for a single statement. It's, it doesn't make sense. It uh, increases round trip time and affects performance. Not like sometimes not significantly, but sometimes a lot. So first of all, isolation levels matter a lot when you have multiple tra- statements in single transaction. And there you can have uh, uh, anomalies. But it's interesting to understand, like, usually we have asynchronous replicas, usually. And we have this problem when reads are not yet propagated, but if someone, for example, added a comment, uh, refreshes page, and we go to replica in, in second request and don't see comment which was just added by this user. So we implement something like stick to primary and so on. And similar effect can be seen with just single node, primary node, because if you have a different transaction, inside transaction, you read something, then you read something else because you read committed, old committed transactions. So these anomalies, and, and or deleted something, some concurrent session deleted something, and in your transaction, you just read something, you read it again, and you don't see it, right? And this is okay. I mean, we got used to it. We just keep it in mind. And when we design our transactions consisting of multiple statements, we just understand that this might happen. So I was going to ask you, actually, what proportion of your clients, uh, your customers, sorry, that's a confusing word here, even change the default here? I, I haven't seen many or I haven't heard of many. Well, first of all, we all change when we use PGDump. For example, well, PageRamp is working in repeatable read because we need snapshot. We want tables to be in a consistent position. We, we want to deal with single snapshot. We don't want uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like reading different table 
breaking foreign key, for, for example. And, uh, and all, uh, if pitch dump, we run pitch dump in multiple sessions, dash J, or number of jobs is four, for example, to move faster, right? In this case, we have snapshot, which we, they are synchronized. All workers of PitchDump will work with single snapshot. We can do it in our application. It's not difficult, actually, to specify snapshot in repeatable retransaction. So the repeatable retransaction is needed, right? It's, it's good. And we all implicitly use it when we run PitchDump. But as for explicit use, I saw only two big use cases. One use case when people understand very well what they do. And they move very carefully to higher level. Understanding that when you move to repeatable read and especially to serializable, you are going to start getting some deadlock, deadlocks occasionally and some slowness. But a second case is more interesting and probably happens more often. Some new developers who don't understand yet the problems of moving to upper level I mean, sometimes we need it. For example, PG dump is one of the cases or some billing system. Probably sometimes we do need a higher level to avoid these anomalies. But another approach is like people just decide, oh, we want to be very in very consistent state. Let's start with serializable level right away. I saw it not once. And in this case, then the th second thing they do is start complaining about Postgres performance. Yeah, so that's the big trade-off, right? <laughs> yeah. Even with few users, yes. Even with few users. Of course, if like for mobile and web apps, the lowest, lowest in, Post in Postgres, the lowest level uh, read committed is, uh, yeah. should be default. But uh, with understanding all... This is the big thing issues. I've seen. It's, I think when people first learn about transactions, uh, it leads them to assume at least a repeatable read behavior. So I think it does catch developers out when people are first learning it, which is understandable. There's a good blog post by right. a former colleague of mine, actually, on this that I'll link up, uh, Lawrence Jones, who I know from GoCardless. So it's, yeah, he writes about that in detail. And I think it's a good one to share with juniors on your team if they're learning about this. Right. So it's uh, my comparison to replicas, uh, synchronous and asynchronous is or semi-synchronous. It's, 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 it's different, but uh, in terms of anomalies, it's quite similar. I mean, users have anomalies. And with asynchronous replicas, they also have anomalies. And we need to deal with it. But uh, why, like, if you think performance doesn't matter, let's make, like, we have five replicas, let's make all of them synchronous, right? And no anomalies anymore. They all have data, the same data. And let's go to serializable. Synchronous replicas, reliable. Yeah, oh, and in multi-regions around the world as well. Of course right? not. Yeah. yeah. Of course, yeah. with big latencies. What could possibly uh, with big go network wrong? Uh, yeah. complexity between them, right? Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And serializable. Good, um, good, good luck. By the way, it, it, this is probably one of the topics we probably should dive deeper and explain many, many cases. And uh, I, I'm refreshing my memory from time to time. I'm sitting in uh, read committed most of my life. So sometimes I go there and uh, find new things for, to me. So I would like to explore this and discuss maybe nice. deeper. Yeah, wonderful. Mm -hmm. Data encryption in Postgres. That's all we got on this one. Data encryption can be different, uh, like at rest and in transit, right? Two, two big areas. And I think, I'm, again, like uh, security is what we need to deal with, but I'm not a big fan of exploring all, all, like usually I prefer to 
to just to check what's the best approach and so on. And the encryption, of course, is a good thing, but compression is also a good thing, right? And sometimes they go together, but not always. And encryption in uh, like should be enabled. For example, especially if you do if you, if you work in, in cloud, but it should be enabled at protocol level. TLS. Yeah. So okay, okay, I see where you're coming from now. I assume they were actually talking about the time I see this come up most in Postgres is because we don't have the whole you know encryption at rest at the database level. So like and compression uh, also. <clears throat> yeah. So there's. The common argument is that you can encrypt the disks. Uh, Using I've which seen... uh, key? Uh, provided by you or by cloud itself? If provided by cloud, <clears throat> then how good is it? Well, I also, I also had, well, I, I tend to trust cloud, uh, the, at least the major cloud providers more than I trust myself. But... Uh, you you may not mm, um no. the other thing the other thing that somebody brought up to me recently that makes a lot of sense is that also you've got to worry about your backups so if you if you've just in, encrypted at the disk level and you've got a postgres backup and you're storing that somewhere that can be restored and it's not it's not encrypted so it, there are other uh, things to consider and usually people store backups in object storage which makes total sense because of its durability in terms of not about uh, not accessibility like high availability maybe uh, high availability of s3 for example is less than e of, of compared to ebs volumes on in aws but durability in terms of uh, data loss it's it's insane and like the data w won't be lost but they also like usually they are not surrounded by some uh, network solutions so i mean these buckets are available from uh, anywhere and you just need proper keys and you can access them from different regions, from different customer accounts and so on. Like it's, it's, it's interesting, but of course they usually provide a lot of things to, for encryption. And sometimes it's challenging to use uh, your own keys. For example, it might uh, break some processes. Like if you want to repeatable uh, retries for chunk upload in some clouds, if you use their keys, it's fine, but if you use customer-managed keys, it might not work, and you need to retry whole file, which might be one gigabyte. In Postgres, all, uh, everything is stored, like all data and indexes are split to one gigabyte files, but if you compress it, it, it will be probably three, 400 megabytes, depending on data and so on. In this case, it, it, think, it means that if you want to use your own keys, probably you need to perform retries of whole file and it's not super efficient so there are many challenges there and also if you encrypt and then you want also to like one uh, we need this is security topic so it's very big and uh, yeah. for example one of the problems it's not like encryption can work in both ways and sometimes encryption is used against the data owner you know, like ransomware, which encrypts uh, all your data, and then they say they will give yeah. you a key only if you pay. So, how to protect against against that? And sometimes, peop like people see bigger danger in this area, like how to avoid encryption. <laughs> I mean, not to avoid, but you probably need to store backups in two clouds, for example, because one yeah. cloud can be stolen, your account is stolen, everything like you lost access. And losing data is probably so. So two big risks: losing data is dif a different disk. Of course, one disk is 
leaking data, very big risk, but also losing data is different risk. And encryption can be used uh, against you in the second case. So, yeah. Is it worth mentioning a couple of third-party tools? Yeah, let's do like, Well, not tools necessarily, but I think both Cybertech and EDB have non-core solutions here for if you, to, if you to encrypt what? Like transparent data encryption from cyber. No, oh, it's it's different. It's it's at, at at upper level. It's not encrypting disk. It's encrypting uh, data inside Postgres, and you might which yeah, which then results in even your backups having like being encrypted. No, right? to me as a Postgres user, I think it's a very good feature we should all all have. But I remember some discussions about it and some like dead end in development. I mean, uh, somehow it's not in core. It cannot be brought to core yet and so on. Like, I don't remember details, unfortunately. But I, in my opinion, it should be in Postgres as a feature. It's, it would be great. Yeah, I'll, I'll link to the ones that I'm aware of in the show notes, just in case anybody does want or need this and wasn't aware of those. I think we've probably got time for one more. I'm scared that the one I'm going to pick is a bit big, but do you have any Let's, on the list that you wanted to make sure we talked about? No, but I can choose a, a couple. Let's, well, migration from other databases like Oracle to Postgres, also on non-relational ones like Couchbase, uh, Cassandra to Postgres. It's a big topic, but fortunately in this case, I'm not a big expert in migration. The main migration I did was from MySQL to Postgres many, many years ago in my project. But my colleagues did a lot of work migrating from Oracle and so on, and I understand the process. Of course, it depends usually on how much code you have on database side. And by that, you mean like procedures and functions? Right, right, right. Migrating scheme is quite easy, but if you have a lot of PLSQL or TSQL code, you need to rewrite it, and this probably will take a lot of time. And second big, biggest challenge, will, I mean, conversion scheme is also a challenge, but it's solvable. There are automation tools. Yeah. Uh, you will deal with some issues, which probably is easy to fix. The key is to test a lot, as usual. Experiments, right? And um, the second biggest challenge after code uh, this uh, server code is probably to, if you want zero downtime migration. In this case, migration is used in proper meaning, I, I think, not in weird meaning when we change schema. Well, we also change schema, but we change <laughs> we change engine for schema, right? But yeah, yeah, yeah in this case, you, you need some uh, replication solution, logical replication solution. Like change data capture type thing. Yeah. The, I actually, this is something I have got a little bit of at least secondhand experience of with there's a cross company working group in France that are doing a lot of migrations from Oracle, from SQL Server, from Sybase. It's, it's been, become really popular Postgres in, in France amongst mm -hmm. huge organizations. And, and they wrote government organizations as well. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Lots of large organizations, including government agencies. And they wrote a, they collaborated on a guide, but it was all in French. And I spent a while with with one of them, so I, I ended up translating a few of the chapters into English. So a few of them are, are thanks to me, a few of them are thanks to other people. So I'll link that up as well, because mm -hmm. there's, there's basically a, a tried and tested formula for doing these. A lot of cult consultancies make a lot of their money helping people do this, so you can get help from from others but yeah it's it's not a small project because a lot of these databases do encourage using sort of procedures and functions so yeah if you have a lot of those don't expect it to be a small project 
What about NoSQL database systems to Postgres? I haven't seen much of it, to be honest, but hopefully we will in the in the coming years. I I saw cases, but I never. I I don't remember any big questions about it. Just do it. That's it. <laughs> I guess it's quite simple, right? I well, guess by by its definition, it doesn't have much schema. If it's MongoDB, there is a new project called Fer- FerretDB, which like speaks Mongo. But yeah, this is one of, one of the way just to use some extension or some project uh, on top of Postgres, which will help. But if it's Cassandra or Couchbase, I don't know. You can use JSON as usual, right? Yeah, there will be difficulties definitely. There will be difficulties. Yeah. Well, if anybody does have experience of that, let us know. But I imagine those are much simpler projects overall. If uh, complex queries to JSON documents in some NoSQL JSON-like storage, uh, we, we could, it can be easy to convert them as is, but you probably will have not good performance and also consistency. Why do you migrate to Postgres? You won't probably benefit from its strong sites and relational, strong relational data model, ACID, and so on. Probably you should move your some of date, some of parts of your data to relational model. Not just Maybe JSON. even normalize it, yeah. Yes, and in this case, uh, it's kind of uh, like building something from scratch, almost. Okay, good point. Mm-hmm. Actually, performance is a big part of some of these migrations. So once you've done the scheme, once you've done the code, you sometimes they get stuck and you see it come up on the mailing list quite a lot, people saying, this used to be one second in Oracle and now it's 20 seconds in Postgres. What can I do about it? You know, you, you only get the... Uh, the squeaky wheels you only hear about the ones that are slower of course because they're the ones holding the project up but it's quite common to have you know if you've got thousands of different queries going through your system a few of them are probably going to be slower in postgres than oracle without some tuning so it's quite common for that to to be be fully fair sql server and oracle optimization code is much more complex sophisticated bigger than Postgres. But on the other side, uh, Oracle has hints and uh, tendency to use them quite a lot, manual control on plan of, of plans, but also like SQL Server, if you compare performance with Postgres, sometimes I saw, I saw some works, uh, SQL Server is winning quite obviously, quite often. But it does mean that in Postgres we cannot make things work well, and it's improving also. Right. So, so I don't know. Like, I, I understand that it's not that simple that, like, it's easy to improve. Well, code base is huge. Uh, some methods for query optimization used in commercial big database systems are very interesting. And many of them Postgres doesn't have yet. So, it's a good point, actually. Like, in the, sometimes it doesn't have them, like, natively, like an index skip scan, for example, but it, by Loose index really scan. You, you need to That's, master it yourself yeah. manually. And other systems exactly. have it. We've we've got transaction control in stored procedures, stored stored procedures, not functions. In Postgres, only in version twelve or when? A few Maybe years even, ago only. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, th- those guys have it for many years. So, like, I I mean, we should not be like uh, we are the best. We are the best in many areas, but not in all, right? I mean, Postgres and all understanding. Yeah. Pros and cons is uh, important not to be like like all good, all good. No, no, sometimes it's not that good and improvements are needed and so on. Workarounds are needed like loose index scan. Yeah, all I, all I meant is it can be a big part of those migrations. 
they can, and they can get right. stuck at that point. What, right? And what I can say, like Postgres has so many things. Uh, usually we have like, okay, maybe in, not in a way you got used to, but in different way we can achieve very good performance, definitely. And you can put very mission critical systems uh, with uh, under big TPS, a lot of data, a lot of TPS and so on and so on. So it's possible to build big, reliable system using Postgres. Nice. And I think this is another one of those ones where we could do a whole... Whole yeah, migration is a huge topic. Again, I'm not an expert, but I can explore and say something, things definitely. Well, maybe some small last thing and that's it? Or what do you think? Sounds good. Yeah, go on then. One more. Okay. Latest fellover best practices. Oh, you picked a nice small one then. Fellover best practices. Fellover is uh, when things go wrong, right? <laughs> what do you do when fellover happens? Answer is you, if if well prepared you shouldn't do anything and this is the key right I remember times when f f no good failover systems existed and also there was consensus that in Postgres I, in my opinion it should be in Postgres inside Postgres but uh, so far it doesn't seem to be to be happening at all but we have Patroni and others A recommendation is to use Patroni or other. Uh, system which follows consensus uh, uh, well-developed consensus algorithms right like raft but uh, if if you use uh, rep manager rep mgr i have bad news for you split brain is very often in large systems or in in cases when you have many clusters it's it's very likely so migrate from it this is the key <laughs> and just use patroni for example or I don't know, like Patroni is is obvious winner right now. Are there any particularly good guides or books on it that you would recommend? Well, just documentation. But, well, there are some tricks there, but it's worth a separate episode probably. But one of the things, for example, you should understand if you use, we mentioned asynchronous replicas. If you have asynchronous replica, during failover, you might have data loss. And Patroni defines by default, if I remember correctly, it's 10 megabytes. Mibibytes, 10 mibibytes of data might be lost in, in case of failover. So this should be understood. Or, or you need to start using quorum commit and some, uh, so, so commit goes to at least to two nodes and Patroni will choose the be best one and probably you won't lose any data during failover. Actually, you know, I, I suspect maybe the author of this question meant something different, not failover, but, but switchover. Or maybe high availability, like maybe it's, the, I think it might be the same one as the one above, which is ah, also yeah, a huge yeah, topic yeah, about high availability. Yeah. 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 Because there are also best practices how to perform switchover and to avoid the long downtime and not to lose data. It's not rocket science, but there are some tricks there. Let's promise to explore these both areas yeah. in the in the future. Okay. Sounds good. good. Well, thanks everybody for these questions and suggestions. Thank you, Nikolai. Thank you for being back and continuing this because I was in fear you you want to stop it. Yeah, you're okay. crazy. I said I'll be back. Okay. And by the way, don't watch all those draft recordings in uh, this Riverside. <laughs> Just delete them. They okay. are all bad. Yeah. That's so funny. All right, take care. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Michael. Bye. Cheers, bye.